From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. There's no more watching your food being cooked. There's no more hanging out with the Jamaican. It's, <laughs> it's just, hi, wagwan, everything good. See you next time. This week on Earth Eats, in celebration of our spring membership drive, we revisit our first full-hour show, a conversation with Tanisha Henline, chef and owner of Top Shotta Jerk Chicken in Bloomington, about running a food truck during a pandemic and how cooking traditional foods connects her with her ancestors. We have a story from Harvest Public Media about debt relief for black farmers and one about plant-based meat. And Josephine McRobbie brings us one of the stories in her series with Joe O'Connell on the Oregon fishing industry. All that in the next hour here on Earth Eats, so stay with us. Earth Eats is produced from the campus of Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. We wish to acknowledge and honor the indigenous communities native to this region and recognize that Indiana University Bloomington is built on indigenous homelands and resources. We recognize the Miami, Delaware, Potawatomi, and Shawnee people as past, present, and future caretakers of this land. Workers in Oregon's commercial fishing industry share a close-knit culture. Now they're trying to imagine how regional tourism fits into that community. This story from producer Josephine McRobbie and public folklorist Joe O'Connell was produced based on original field research for the Oregon Folklife Network. The men were after me something awful after I won the arm wrestling championship. Swapping stories about work and play is an Oregon fishing industry tradition. By then, the bar is packed. It was after a halibut opener. There's 300 people in there. Sarah Scamzer is a net maker in Newport. I went and signed up, weighed in at the unlimited weight division, sat back down. My name got called, and there's Shirley, the arm wrestling champion of four years. And she's just grabs a hold of me and is just turning colors and grunting and I'm holding steady and then I realize I have not tried yet and I slammed her right down. Thank you very much. Some poets and musicians near the coast have elevated commercial fishing lore to an art form. The string band Brownsmead Flats are performing at a winery in the town of Nehalem. It isn't very far to Astoria's bar, but a very long journey it can be. It can start at the mountain. We sort of like to refer ourselves as, as crabgrass, sort of bluegrassy sound, you know, but with a, a maritime flavor. In our grandfather's day, when they rode all night to fish in the morning and live. My name is Ned Heavenrich and I live in Brownsmead. My name is Dan Sutherland, and I also live in Brownsmead. Brownsmead, Oregon. Uh, there's Ray Raihala, who plays banjo, and then uh, John Fenton, our bass player, Larry Moore, uh, mandolin player. Larry Moore, do you want to join in on this? I 
the joint. Yeah. No. Yeah. yeah. No fishing here is worth. It is worth more than gold. When we fill When they sing about Astoria's bar, they're not talking about a pub, but rather the intimidating waters where the Columbia River meets the Pacific Ocean. Oh, here's Hold On, if I could do that one. The song was written by somebody just across the river. Uh, Mary Garvey, I live in Long Beach, Washington now. I've lived here about 18 years. I, I don't think of myself as a performer. I guess I've written enough songs I could say I'm a songwriter. Destination. I could do the destination. That's that's Alaska. That I sing that official poets, and it turns out that for both Mary Garvey and Brownsmead Flats, singing about the region is essential. I think it's very important to, if you can, write about specific people, specific events, communities. We like to do a lot of songs about living on the coast or near the coast. And my stuff sort of does that by accident. I don't set out to do it. You know, it's just what this area is. You, know? yeah. you, you write about where you live. So I, th- I think, you know, there's some, like I said, there's something you could sort of tap into. You know, maybe if, we live, if it's in Wisconsin, you'd write about cows and milk, I don't know, and cheese. <laughs> and, and here you write about fish and, and water and trees and the rain. Both artists are mainstays at the Fisher Poets Gathering, an annual event held by and for insiders. Pretty much everyone on stage at the gathering is or has been a commercial fisher. In Astoria, the Fisher Poets Gathering would ask for some tune to be maybe oriented to be more maritime, or did you have something to do with the fishing industry? And of course, yeah. Ray and, mm-hmm. yeah. and Ned's been a fisherman. Ray probably was kind of the first person to get into that. His father was a gillnet fisherman on the Columbia River for many, many years, and he grew up in that tradition. And uh, so he fished with his his dad, and then he was a fish buyer. You know, he had had a lot of stories to tell about. Kate Gable did a really good job singing this on a CD. Hold on, hold on, I'm frightfully concerned. Hold on, hold on, there's news that we have learned. Hold on, hold on, there's a boat that's overturned. The Coast Guard. Mary Garvey never made her living on the water, but her songs help commemorate events in the community. Hold on, it's a true story. It was right after Christmas, and somebody started to go down. He had in his pocket a new cell phone that someone had given him. He's in the water. All of a sudden he remembers his phone. He gets the phone out and he gets hold of, I guess, the Coast Guard or somebody, but they didn't know where he was. The water's cold enough to freeze. The Coast Guard is coming. And he gave a few descriptors, and I guess the community somehow said, well, he must be near here. They went circling around looking for him, and with his very last wave, he was underwater totally. His very last wave, I've heard. He waved to him, and they saw him. It was getting, I think it was getting dark. And this one happened so close to Fisher Poets. Sometimes if there's a time urgency, I might because I knew it should be sung at Fisher Poets because they actually, some of them, I don't know if they knew the people, but they knew the boat and they knew the place. Amazing rescue. Amazing. Are we ready? Some of the songs by Brownsmead Flats address transitions taking place on the coast. This is a song we wrote for the tourists. 
We've changed in, since we've been here yeah. from an industrial economy to a tourist economy, yeah. which has benefited us a lot. More venues, yeah. uh, restaurants and stuff like that have sprung up and uh, there are more festivals. You know, it's a little bit of an irony, but you know, you've replaced one kind of industry with another, and it's important how it's done, <laughs> you know, so timber, fishing, mm -hmm. you know, and that's, that is what I think people consider the source of a place. Like, can you have both? It would be nice to have both <laughs> sustainable everything. Increasingly, fishers and other workers share what they do with curious visitors. I see tourists just lining the docks, and they all have this just far away look in their eyes like, I could do it, I could, I could fish, I could go out there. You know, they just all are, it's just an enamor, it's something I think within all of us because of the fact that we're made of seawater. Sarah Scamzer has made her fishing net workshop a go-to spot for educational events and tuna barbecues. We do a lot of workshops with lay people and marine biologist students, and the guys working on the nets just fascinates people. And then we'll have excluders out in the parking lot to show them the different types and and just to inform them that the, because the fishermen are busy, they never tell their own story. So we're kind of the in between. COVID-19 precautions mean that the social life around commercial fishing is on hold. Brownsmead Flats, their last gig was at the Fisher Poets Gathering back in February. But when they take the stage again, they'll be back to doing what they do best, bridging the worlds of work and play in coastal Oregon. Well, I'll leave Lily and I'll be a sailor. Way, hey, bully in the alley. I'll leave Lily and ship aboard a whaler. Bully down a ship bow now. So This story by producer Josephine McRobbie and public folklorist Joe O'Connell features the voices of Oregon-based commercial fishers and seafood entrepreneurs. O'Connell conducted the original research in August 2019 for the Oregon Folklife Network with support from the National Endowment for the Arts. More shoppers are buying Impossible Burgers, Beyond Meat, and other meat alternatives made from plants. Now smaller businesses are jumping on the trend too, but as Harvest Public Media's Seth Bodine reports, while the industry is gaining traction, public perception is one of the biggest obstacles to more growth. It's no secret that Oklahoma is beef country. Even the Oklahoma legislature recently passed a measure encouraging citizens to eat more meat. Let's uh, enjoy the summer with eating lots of meat. <laughs> Members, you've heard explanation. Gr grill it all on. Put everything on the grill, Mr. Speaker. <laughs> grill it all. Amen. The state used millions of dollars in COVID relief to boost local meat processors. Despite this official support for beef, pork, and meats, some alternatives are making headway. Meet Gwyneth Yvonne and Randon Moore. Gwen and I like to say we're changing cattle country one vegan meal at a time. Yvonne and Moore started a vegan food business called Beatbox, spelled like the red root vegetable, while at Northwestern Oklahoma State University. I think that's what surprises people the most is our chicken because people don't think it's 
it's vegan at first until we like try to convince them like trust us it's vegan they had students lined up outside their apartment that's when we knew we had something special and we knew we had to take it to the next level and open a food truck together. Nationally, products like chickenless patties and beefless burgers have been slowly growing. Jason Lusk is a professor of agricultural economics at Purdue University. You can see from grocery store sales data, so scanner data, that sales of plant-based alternatives are, are increasing. Lusk says sales of refrigerated meat substitutes are up more than 100% in May 2020 compared to 2019. That big jump is because the market is still small, he says. But beef is still a big winner. Shoppers chose beef about three times as often as all meat alternatives. Part of that is likely the price. Right now, mock meats are more expensive to make. But Lusk says consumer preferences are the biggest barrier. Consumers' perceptions of traditional beef are very positive and generally more positive than the plant-based alternatives in terms of things like uh, taste. I, I love a great steak, you know, sirloin and just just wonderful, but I'm a little bit more on the traditional side. So when you talk about plant-based foods, my first impression would be how good will it be, you know, for something if you compare it to a good steak. That's Mike Leal. He and his wife Christy stopped by the beatbox truck outside a brewery in Oklahoma City. When they tasted the chickenless nachos from Beatbox, Christy says they were surprised. If I understand correctly, this is um, jackfruit. Um, it's actually pretty good. Yeah. The texture is very similar. The flavor is similar. So maybe it is getting somewhere now. The owners say a majority of Beatbox's customers aren't vegan. In fact, that's one of the main markets of these meat alternatives. Glenn Tonzer is a professor at Kansas State University. Somebody still is open to consuming meat products, so beef, pork, chicken, and the like, but maybe not with every meal. Scott Bluebaugh, the president of the Oklahoma Farmers Union, says the plant-based meat industry could become a competitor for beef and pork. When you look at, say, almond milk or, or some of the other substitutes that really aren't milk at all, um, you know, they really against our dairy farmers. Which is why he supports laws in Oklahoma and other states that require meat alternatives to be clearly labeled as plant-based. Still, entrepreneurs like Moore and Yvonne are hopeful more people will start to open up to these alternatives. They say they're talking with big fast food restaurants about their chickenless patties. Moore says they're dreaming big. A lot of people ask us, how big do you want to get? We usually say, have you heard of Amazon? So that's our goal, you know. So. While experts expect companies like Beatbox to grow, they don't think most people will be replacing their hamburgers or steak with mock meat anytime soon. Seth Bodine, Harvest Public Media. Our partners at Harvest Public Media bring you news and stories on food and farming in the heartland. Find more at harvestpublicmedia.org. Maybe it was a friend on Facebook 
bragging on their tasty takeout meal on a Friday night. Perhaps it was the aroma of spicy meats on a grill, the smoke from a barbecue wafting through the air as you rode your bike on 4th Street downtown one night around dinner time. You caught a flash of a bright green and yellow food truck out of the corner of your eye, but kept pedaling home. Maybe you've heard of Top Shot of Jerk Chicken. Maybe you've even tried their food. Either way, now you have the chance to hear from the owner of this unique food truck on the streets of Bloomington, Indiana. My name is Tanisha Henline. I am the owner of Top Shot of Jerk Chicken, an authentic Jamaican food truck here in Bloomington, Indiana. I met up with Tanisha in a city park on 3rd Street one morning to talk about her food and the story behind her business. On the food truck, I make traditional Jamaican rice and peas, which in Jamaica we call peas, peas um, beans, we call the beans peas. But here, it's peas that's green. That's what people think the rice and peas is, but it's actually kidney beans with white rice. And traditionally, we make that on Sundays. It's really fancy, so I make that every day. I also make jerk chicken tacos. In Jamaica, I've never had a taco, but when I came here, I realized that everyone loves tacos from a food truck. So I do that, and then I do the traditional jerk chicken. In Jamaica, it's chopped up, but I leave it on the bone. Traditionally, it's spicy, but I make my jerk sauce from scratch, the marinade from scratch, and it's on the side. It's not spicy at all, just a hit of flavor. Every eat you eat it, you love the food. It's very delicious. I also do my own coleslaw that I call the shatter slaw. I also have slices of potato bread and sometimes I do specials, oxtail, curry goat, brown stew chicken, curry chicken, and I post that on my Facebook page anytime I have those. I asked Tanisha why she left the meat on the bone even though it's not traditional. You know, actually, it's because of that's what Americans prefer. And I'm trying to reach out to Americans. That's the target audience that I'm trying to reach out to. So I leave it on the bone. But if you want it chopped, I will gladly chop it for you. If you want that experience of it being chopped up and me putting on your sauce and it's being spicy from the get-go, I'm more than happy to do that. So it would be on the grill hold. I'll season it in pieces, then after it's done, I, I chop it up with a, with a cleaver, put it in a file paper, put on um, ketchups, the sauce is on there, and then hand it to you. So I get the, the chicken fresh and I marinate it with the sauces and the spices that I make from scratch that's traditional to my homeland and I marinate it and then we cook it on the grill. And it's very healthy as well. The thing about jerk is that we have a dry rub that's made of our traditional spices. And usually you do that at home. If it's just the family, you don't want to do it too fancy, you use your dry rub. Then you have a wet rub. And if that's for commercial use, you're trying to do something a bit more fancy, you use your wet rub on there. But at Top Shada, I use both the dry rub and the wet rub and you have to poke holes in the chicken, you have to get the, the seasoning underneath the meat and that is also a process of the jerk chicken. That's how my ancestors actually did it. It's all fresh ingredients. I have onions, garlic, because you have to use peppers and stuff like that because that's healthy too. And then I have dry rubs which is I use over 30 mixes of dry rubs into one to make that into my jerk. And then I have another set of the wet rub, which is the onions, the escalions, the tomatoes. And then I have 
allspice, a Jamaican, it's not Jamaican food without allspice, and you have that into your rub plus a whole lot of other stuff. Vegetarians, don't worry. Top Shada has something for you. Sometimes I have customers who don't eat meat. The rice and peas is for vegetarians. There's no broth in there. I make, I make the water taste delicious and put the rice in there with the peas and everything. There's nothing that a vegetarian would be, you know, like, oh, no, I don't want that. Then the tacos, I don't have to put the chicken in there because the tacos come with shredded cabbage, a slice of pear, and in Jamaica, an avocado, we call that a pear. And, but we know that an, a pear is, here is an American pear. So it's a slice of avocado, some chicken usually, but then I don't have to put the chicken in, some cabbage, I have tomatoes, onion, escalions, and sweet peppers, and also the sauce. And the sauce has nothing that's not friendly to vegetarian in it. And I also have a burrito that I could just not put any meat in. It has a coleslaw, it has tomatoes, onion, cheese, sour cream, the rice and peas, and that's all in a wrap. Tanisha shared her understanding of the origins of the jerk tradition in Jamaica. In the 1650s, they were, they were named Maroons. Those are my ancestors. They're called the Maroons. They were the first escaped slaves from Jamaica. They were on the plantations when the Spaniards captured them. And then the British took over in 1655. And on that plantation, they were like, hold on, we don't want to do this anymore. We're not going to be slaves. Enough is enough. And we're going to fight for our freedom. So they escaped, they went into the mountains. The other name for a maroon is a mountaineer. They went up in the mountains and they were being followed. So they had to come up with a way, how are we gonna eat without being captured? So they decided we can make the herbs of the earth, all the seasoning, the dry herbs, we're gonna mix that into a spice. We're gonna kill the boar, the pig. That's the first thing that was jerked in Jamaica. We're gonna kill the boar, we're gonna dig a hole in the ground and they would put pimento wood, that's also a native of Jamaica, allspice, into the ground, season the meat, cover it with more pimento wood, then put dry leaves on top, and that would smother the smoke. So that's also smoking it, jerking it underneath, and the British soldiers can tell that there's actually a fire going on. So that's where it actually came from. And what about the word jerk? At first, I can remember in history class, that the Tanos, and those were the first settlers before Christopher Columbus, they were the first one there, the Tanos and the Arawaks. Now what they used to do, they would have the same spice, but they would dry the meat. So it's kind of like the jerky. Oh. But then when the Maroons got a hold of the recipe, they were like, we don't like this part. We want it a bit more juicy, a bit more flavorful, a bit more hearty, that if we eat a piece of meat, we'll actually can hold us within these war times. So they added a bit more flavor and other seasonings that created the wet rub and the dry rub for the jerk. It is grilled and smoked at the same time. And it's not just, it's not like barbecue. You act, it's a whole process. And every time I do it, it's such pride. My husband, Eli, I actually met him. The way, the way that I got to come here in Jamaica, I feel like I have to say this because I wouldn't be here with this food truck had I not met him. So I was in Jamaica six years ago. I lived there. 
and I met him on vacation and he flirted with me the entire time but I was just like, I'm not too sure. They stayed connected after he returned to Bloomington. Eli invited her to visit, they fell in love, married, and Tanisha moved to Bloomington. But while I loved being here, the food was not the same and it was a big culture shock for me and I was very depressed. So in order to stay here and still be happy, I had to find a way to cook. And if I'm cooking all the time and I'm enjoying this good food, I feel like I should share it. I would be selfish for keeping on to this good food all for myself. While Tanisha did not cook professionally in Jamaica, she certainly had experience in the kitchen. I grew up extremely poor. I didn't have plumbing. I used candles to study for my schoolwork. So I didn't have the luxury of going out to eat. You had to buy the chicken back, the chicken neck, the worst part of the chicken, and you had to make that into something that's delicious that you can eat. So even in Jamaica, I always had to cook because if I don't cook, I don't eat. And so I've always had a strong connection to food, but coming here, it got even stronger because I couldn't get the things that I really wanted. But now that I've had the food truck and I'm cooking what I love and things that I couldn't even afford in Jamaica, like oxtail, I dreamt of eating oxtail. I remember my friend, I asked her for some of her gravy just to see what it tasted like. And now being able to buy that and cook that and share it to others, it makes me so happy. And I just have to thank the community for just accepting me for who I am and for what I am doing. I've been in business this year, now would be my third full year. I actually started two and a half years ago when it was in the winter and it was so cold. I couldn't manage the cold, I still can't. But I was like, oh well, you know, even though it's cold out there, I wanted to start. As soon as I was up and running and I got certified by the city, I just wanted to get out there to start sharing my culture. So this year will actually be in winter, my third full year. Well, as a food truck, any restaurant, you have to have a commissary, and that's One World Commissary, which shout out to One World Commissary. We have a commissary there. I keep my dry goods there. On the truck, I try to do as much as I can before the, the, like the day off. I have an hour that I start my prepping because we prep every day, fresh, no, no frozen food. So that's how I do it. We are closed on Sundays, Mondays, and Tuesdays. And then Wednesdays, I do lunch on the west side at Dirt Sports. And then Thursday, Fridays, and Saturday, I am on 3rd and College across from Atlas. And I have permission to be there at 5. So I get there at 5, I do my prepping, and then I can serve by 6. And then that's weather permitting because of the charcoal grill. I have it pulled on behind the food truck. So if it's raining, I can't really be out there in the rain because the grill, once the, it gets wet and the charcoal, not possible so I post every morning if I'll be out that day. 
Nisha posts her location and any specials of the day on Top Shada's Facebook page and on Instagram. Regulars know to check there first. I'm Kate Young, this is Earth Eats, and we're speaking with Tanisha Henline of Top Shada Jerk Chicken in Bloomington, Indiana. After a short break, we'll hear how Tanisha adapted to the COVID-19 restrictions and what it means to her to share food in the community. Stay with us. Subscribe to the Earth Eats Digest. It's a weekly note with previews, food stories, and recipes directly in your inbox. Go to eartheats.org to sign up. Welcome back. You're listening to Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. We're talking with Tanisha Henline. She's the owner and chef at Top Shotta Jerk Chicken and Cuisine. It's a food truck here in Bloomington, Indiana. With everything that the restaurant industry has been through since widespread shutdown orders started in March of this year, I asked Tanisha what adjustments she has had to make to comply with the COVID-19 restrictions. In the past, I loved the fact that my customers could come to the truck talk with me while their chicken is being grilled right there. They could see their chicken. I would sometimes ask them which pieces they would like. You choose your piece of meat. You see it come off fresh off the grill. I'm there fixing your food. We'll talk a little more and then you leave. Some people would like to eat there and tell me how good the food is, which I love. But now with the COVID and the pandemic, I have to encourage pre-ordering. So once I post, I get calls for orders and then I get there I start doing my prep, then I start cooking, and they would just have to pick up their food and leave. There's no more watching your food being cooked. There's no more hanging out with the Jamaican. It's it's just, hi, wagwan, everything good. See you next time. Which, it's still nice, but I miss people being able to watch their chicken on the grill. Things have changed drastically. No, I mean, before I used to, give out hand sanitizer, wipes. I used to do that before because I I like doing that. That's a good thing for a a restaurant to do. But then now I have to ensure that because my husband helps me on the truck. He drives it for me and he helps me with the charcoal grill. So we have to give hand sanitizer to everyone once they touch their money. We got to make sure we're wiping all the surfaces, which I used to do before. But now it's even more strenuous um, things that you have to do to ensure that you are in accordance with the law with what you have to do right now. Tanisha prefers that customers call first to pre-order. I asked if walk-up ordering is possible. Say, if you were walking by, caught a whiff of the sizzling seasoned meats from the grill. Yes, sometimes I can't really tell if I'll, be, if I'll have a busy day or not. Sometimes it's busy, sometimes it's not. Some days you can walk up and right away I can serve you. Other days, I do have the chicken, 
but I can't serve you yet because I have so many pre-orders. So you can always walk up to the truck and order, but I can't guarantee that I'll be able to serve you immediately. I wondered if jerk chicken is something that you would normally find served as street food in Jamaica. This is a popular, one of the most popular street foods in Jamaica. Anywhere on the street, there's a jerk man. And usually they're there in the evenings, not in the mornings. They're usually there for, lunch, for dinner and then late night when the parties are going on. Two, three o'clock in the morning, if you're leaving a party, he's right out there with his soup, with his jerk. You're so hungry, it smells so good, you just have to get some food. It's, it's a whole tradition for us. The jerk chicken man, when you go to the, the club or when you're on the street, He's just there with his little pan, smelling up the whole place with his, with his aroma of food. You go there, you buy food, you talk to him. It's a whole social business, and that's what Negril, where I'm from in Jamaica, is actually known for. The, our beaches, the jerk chicken man just there on the street. But I wanted to bring that, but I couldn't bring it here because of the laws. So I had to get an entire food truck. I couldn't just have the pan how it is back home. Here on Earth Eats, we've interviewed entrepreneurs in the food world, and I am always curious to hear what it is that drives them to start their own business. I personally find the idea terrifying. Oh, it's nerve-wracking. You know, back home in Jamaica, because things was rough, I always had to work and pay bills, and I was like, well, I would love to be something more one day but I don't see it materializing yet, so I'm just going to work towards whatever may come. After moving to Bloomington, Tanisha worked a couple of desk jobs, but she wasn't happy. She was missing her culture. She was missing her food. She started to find the ingredients to make her favorite dishes at home, and she began to wonder if she could start cooking for others. So I was like, well, hmm, if I can get the food that I like from home and I can cook it, And I've not been happy with the working relationships that I've put myself in here, then I can do this. And I spoke to my husband about it, and he's like, well, I've been eating your food for a while, and yes, it's good, and I wouldn't just say that because you're my wife, it's really good. So I will back you 100%, and just having his support, knowing that he believes that I can do it, just made me want to do it even more. When I tried to get the food here, even when I went out of state, I knew I could do better. And I'm not trying to knock anyone's business. I'll big up to all Jamaicans who are trying to make something big out there. But I've tried it and I was like, I can do better, you know? And Bloomington needs this. They have a, Bloomington has a lot of, of different type of people, a lot of ethnicity here, but as I start, there's no Jamaican. There's different stuff that I've tried, but it's not Jamaican. And I was like, you know what, I can do it. And I feel like the community would embrace that too, and they have, which I am grateful for. I asked if it was just her and Eli running the business, or did she have other employees? Yes, it's just the two of us. I feel like I can't control my product once somebody else is in charge. And I like being able, it's from me, this is from my heart, and it's to you, straight from me. And I feel like if I get anybody else, they won't care as much as I do. Because this is my culture, this is what, what, the way I was grew, grown, this is how I was raised. So how has business been? You know, to be honest, I would say that I slow and steady win the race. I, people are slowly hearing about me. And the good thing is that once you've had the food once, I have had so many people that once I'm seeing them the next day and the next day. 
and a return face is always good but now that more people hearing about me it's slowly more now picking up yeah, yeah because yeah, back then nobody knew that i was even out nobody knew so i'm slow i feel like this is the first year that more of the bloomington community even know that there's a jamaican food truck in town i asked tanisha to reflect on what sharing food means to her for me food first you, you eat with your eyes so for me when i'm plating my food i feel a sense of pride because my ancestors the maroons what they did they had to hide and do it. And because of them, I am free today to share it across the world. As a Jamaican being in Indiana, to me, it's a huge deal. We, we as Jamaicans, we're small, but we're everywhere, sharing our culture, making people happy. When I have a customer who, I think he's eight years old, and he saves his allowance that he gets on a weekly basis to come to the food truck and buy his family food. And he waves his $20 and I run out there and I hug him and I'm so happy that you love the food. And he says, the food is amazing. I've had kids, babies told me that the food is so good. It makes me happy. It makes me extremely happy because I do it with a sense of pride. And if I wouldn't eat it, then I'm not serving it. And I cook it to the best of my ability that if my ancestors are anywhere watching me, they're going to say, well done, my child. You're doing the right thing. And I have to have a sense of pride anytime when I do this. Every time I go on that truck, she's, her name is Nanny of the Maroons. She, the name of the truck is actually one of our heroine, the Nanny of the Maroons. She led the Morant Bay Rebellion. She led a lot of the wars that happened between the British that eventually they had to sign a treaty with us because we were not gonna remain slaves anymore. And every time I poke a piece of chicken, I remember that if it weren't for them being brave enough to stand up for years and sh shedding their blood, I can't do this. I wouldn't be able to be here. And I'm just happy that the community accepts me and they have been so loving towards me. Everybody has been so nice. And I just, I couldn't wish it any better to be in a community that's so diverse and everybody's so loving. I've hadn't had a bad experience being in Bloomington. I've had great encounters with people. Everybody loves me. <laughs> you know, it's a Jamaican food truck. The food is very good. I couldn't let Tanisha go without asking her about the name of her business, Top Shotta. So if you're a Top Shotta, you're a hustler, you're a go-getter, nobody messes with you, you're all about the Benjamins. You're just trying to hustle and get your slice of the cake. You're a top shotter. Okay. Yep. And you're the best at what I do, and I'm a top shotter at jerking chicken. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you're a boss. You're a boss at what you do, and people know, they respect you for that. And a boss she is. That was Tanisha Henline, owner and chef of Top Shotta Jerk Chicken and Cuisine, a food truck found on the streets of Bloomington, Indiana. Check the Earth Eats website for details on Top Shotta's menu and location. EarthEats.org.
At our house, we have an eclectic collection of mugs. And lately I've noticed that my relationship with them is rather involved. We have ones that were handcrafted by my friend Libby, one from the dentist office in Terre Haute where my son had dental work done at age one and a half. There's the kitten mug with a picture of a kitten on the front and a small circle of the kitten image on the inside so you never lose sight of the kitten, even when taking a drink. There's the mug from Wanzik Construction from way back in the days when I worked in the building trades. That's the one I pick up when I've got a serious workday ahead and I need to buckle down and power through. The kitten one is for days when I need to be nice to myself. The one from a local law office has a nice weight to it. It feels good in my hand and it's a great choice for day-to-day getting stuff done. The handcrafted ones are luxurious and comforting at once. My partner often uses the dentist one since we don't care if it gets tea stains. There's one with an elegant Sohio logo on it. It's a narrow mug that fits perfectly in the car cup holder. But I hesitate to take it out of the house for fear of breaking it. It is a favorite. The plain dark blue one can travel. It's replaceable. Same with the one from the hub. I have a second one stashed away. But the best mug in the world is one that my former co-workers had custom made for me that says, I have lots of ideas. It makes me feel seen and known and loved. I miss that one. It's been hanging out at the office without me for nine months. Maybe I should go by and pick it up. Anyway, the point is, mugs can be special. We can get attached to ordinary objects. If you're looking for a new mug to enter your life, maybe you could request one from WFIU as a thank you gift when you make your donation. Public Radio always has good mugs. Your WFIU mug could be the one you use when you're feeling generous, community-minded, proud of yourself, or well-informed. Here at WFIU, we're in the midst of our spring fun drive. You can pledge your support now by going to WFIU.org donate. And thank you. Black farmers have faced decades of discrimination at the hands of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, which has denied them loans and other aid. A discrimination lawsuit promised vital debt relief, but many didn't get it. Now, despite some partisan resistance, black farmers and other disadvantaged groups are getting billions in debt relief and help. Harvest Public Media's Seth Bodine reports. The newest stimulus bill includes $4 billion in debt relief and an additional billion for assistance that black farmers have been waiting on for decades. But it didn't come easy. 49 senators voted to strip or reduce the aid. Republican Senator Lindsey Graham was at the forefront of that effort. As reparations 
What does that got to do with COVID? But for John Boyd Jr., who heads the National Black Farmers Association, it makes perfect sense. He says black farmers are facing extinction, and the pandemic has made the situation worse. When animals are facing extinction, Congress puts laws in place until their numbers come back up. But here we are, been saying the same thing for, I know I have, for the past 30 some odd years and uh, Congress has been slow to act. In the 1990s, many black farmers were promised debt relief. That's part of a billion-dollar settlement with the USDA, but many didn't get that money. Willard Tillman heads the Oklahoma Black Historical Research Project. He says while the lawsuit paid out money to some farmers, no internal changes were made to root out racism. I do not know where anybody was reprimanded for anything that they had done doing that time. Drusilla James is a rancher in Wawoka, Oklahoma. She says she tried to get assistance from the Farm Service Agency to clear her land, but when she went into the office, the answer would always be the same. No, no assistance is available. None. Come back later, you know, and you go back later, you get the same response. Nope, nothing's available. Maybe in about three to six months, you know, maybe next year, you know, and you go over there so often, you, you already know the answer. With the lack of support, James had to work full-time at the UPS to support her ranch. She was saving money, up to $20,000 just to do work on her land. Now she wants to expand and buy the 130 acres across her street, but she can't afford it, and she feels like she can't turn to the Farm Service Agency. You could only be told no so many times till you're really discouraged from doing anything. James isn't the only one having a hard time getting loans. Bristow, Oklahoma rancher Dre Williams tried countless times to get assistance before finally wrangling a small loan. Oh, I kept on and kept on and kept on, and, and finally, you know, I got a loan for some cattle. Even with cattle, it was a fight to get land to go along with it. He says he hopes the $1 billion in technical assistance in the relief bill makes it easier to access loans in other USDA programs. But ultimately, the change comes down to the local level. You can make all the changes you want, but the employees, the person that, that's running that office, you know, you can't change them. You can't change their mentality. Farmer John Boyd Jr. remains optimistic and says the relief package is a good start. But he's calling on Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack to do more. The first thing Secretary Vilsack needs to say is, the United States Department of Agriculture is open for business for black farmers and farmers of color, too. Bill Sack is setting up an equity commission at the USDA, and Boyd and others are calling him to address systemic racism in agriculture. Seth Bodine, Harvest Public Media. Find more from this reporting collective at harvestpublicmedia.org.
Here at WFIU, we're in the midst of our spring fun drive. If Earth Eats is one of your favorite shows here on WFIU, let us know by making a pledge at WFIU.org donate. And tell us what you love about the station in your comments. And we know that some of you are tuning into Earth Eats from another station. And of course, we encourage you to support your local public radio station, which will likely be holding their own fun drive this spring. You might be tuning in from your favorite podcast app. And if that's you, there's another way that you can support the show. You can subscribe, follow, or favorite however your podcast service sets it up, and maybe take two minutes to leave a review. Mention what you like about the show. It means a lot to us, and it helps other listeners find us. So thank you, podcast listener. I'm happy you're here, and I look forward to hearing from you. And once again, for local folks, the place to make your pledge is wfiu.org donate. Thank you. Earth Eats team includes Aoban Binder, Mark Chilla, Abraham Hill, Josephine McRobbie, the IU Food Institute, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Special thanks this week to Tanisha Henline and Joe O'Connell. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from the artists at Universal Productions Music. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey.